You're listening to the Belfer Center's Office Hours. Watch highlights from this and other Office Hours interviews on YouTube at youtube.com slash belfercenter. We sat down with Graham Allison, who in July is concluding 22 years as the director of the Belfer Center, but will continue as the Douglas Dillon Professor of Government here at the Harvard Kennedy School. His latest book, called Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Ducidity's Trap, is available now at booksellers everywhere. So you've got a new book out, and uh, I like the title, Destined for War, but, I, but I, the subtitle I don't like because you use a pretty big word in there, and I'm going to need a little help with it. It's, uh, it's called Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Through... through how do we... Through, so we even put up a website called uh, See Who's Talking About Thucydides. So Thucydides. Go to Thucydides. His name Thucydides. is Thucydides. Thucydides Trap. And Thucydides Trap is a big idea. Okay. Yeah. Well, what's this, what's this trap? What is, what is Thucydides Trap? Well, the big idea is that when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power... Stuff happens, bad stuff. Uh, basically, alarm bell should sound, extreme danger ahead. Thucydides uh, earned this insight for us 2,500 years ago when he was watching the uh, rise of Athens and the reaction of Sparta, mm-hmm. the two leading city-states in classical Greece. But uh, whenever a rising power threatens to displace number one, uh, danger extreme danger, I look at the last 500 years uh, of history mm-hmm. and find 16 cases where a rising power threatens to displace a major ruling power, mm-hmm. 12 of them in, in war, four of them in not war. So the challenge is to learn the lessons both of the successes and the mistakes. So we've got uh, we've got a rising power, and the rising power is China. That's right. what we're talking about. Uh, and the ruling power is the United States. Right. Uh, we've got 12 cases in the past, in the past 500 years where a rising power and a ruling power have come to war, and four cases where they've where they've peacefully war averted. war averted. So we've got a twenty five percent chance that we'll have World War Three sometime in the next. Well, I mean, they're basically just on that on that record. But right. I would say it's obviously more complicated than that. So this yeah. is not a statistical study. Right. This is not meant to be political science or social science for the sake of a of a of a sample. Mm-hmm. I'm actually in the Thucydides Trap website, uh, which you can go to. We are inviting identification of additional cases because every case is interesting Mm -hmm. because it helps you see some of the additional twists and turns Mm -hmm. but in every case the central axis is the rising power which becomes more assertive uh, and very naturally normally wait I'm bigger I'm stronger I deserve more say I deserve more sway and the reactions of the ruling power which says well you're challenging the international order you're challenging the status quo. You should be grateful for the environment that I built that allowed you to grow up to be bigger and stronger. So that dynamic we see over and over with many interesting nuances. And that's why the six, 16 cases are fascinating, as is the first case uh, 2,500 years ago between Athens and Sparta. Can we learn things from things that are so long ago? I mean, haven't times changed? Don't we deal with different geopolitical realities what how, how, do, how do you reconcile those well there there is Thucydides again Thucydides was the father of history as we know it so he was the first one to try to write as he says in this book I'm trying to write down what actually happened and get the facts right because as long as human beings are human beings history will 
resemble the future will resemble the past more or less. Now, of course, obviously, sometimes more and sometimes less. So some things are extremely identical. Human beings are quite, you could read Thucydides and listen to, through his writing to the speech given by Pericles and imagine you were sitting there today. These people are just like us. They're the same human beings. They got two legs. They got a head. They think. They make mistakes. They make choices. They get passionate. They become. So the human beings have not changed all that radically. Uh, lots of the conditions under which they uh, try to survive have changed. Is there, a, is there a case out of those 16 cases, is there one that is the closest analog to what we're experiencing today? Well, I would say there's two. There's the negative one and the positive one. Oh. The negative one is what was happening actually in the world a hundred years ago today. People, uh, most Americans don't remember, but uh, just last month, a hundred years ago, the U.S. entered World War II and got into the fight. Uh, World War I. World War I. Yeah. So, uh, and World War I remains almost unimaginable. I have a good chapter called, uh, you know, The Road to 1914. Mm-hmm. So how could the assassination of an archduke in Sarajevo be the spark that produces a conflagration at the end of which it's so devastating that historians have to create a whole new category right. called World War? I mean, it seems totally it's, nonsensical. At the end of the war, every major leader had lost what he cared about most. So the Austro-Hungarian emperor is trying to hold together his empire. His empire is dissolved and he's gone. The Russian czar is trying to back up the Serbs. He's been overthrown by the Bolsheviks. So his whole regime is gone. The Kaiser is trying to back up his buddy in, in Vienna. He's tossed out. France bled of its youth for a whole generation, never recovered. And Britain, shorn of its treasure in its youth, it turns to be a, a deader country. So everybody lost what he cared about most. If they'd been given a chance for a do-over, Nobody would have made the choices that he did. So what this suggests is that under conditions of severe structural stress, where I attribute the worst of intentions to you, Mm -hmm. I'm the most suspicious of everything you do, I become entangled with other parties, and vice versa, under those conditions, a little spark can produce a huge fire. And what's particularly crazy about World War I, I think, is that uh, people forget that Kaiser Wilhelm was first cousins with King George V. Absolutely. Not only that, King George V was also first cousins with Tsar Nicholas, who was also third cousins with Kaiser Wilhelm. Absolutely. Everybody was related. Two or three years before the war broke out, there were two chief mourners at the funeral in, in London of the king. And the one was the successor, and the other was Kaiser Wilhelm. Kaiser Wilhelm would always go to the British regatta, and he would dress up in a British naval uniform. He told Teddy Roosevelt at the funeral, he said, you know, I really, I'm English. I love England. This is a German this is two Kaiser. Years, this is the three years two, before three war. years before the war. That's absolutely so insane. So the idea that these people are all part of, and actually, as you get the run-up to the war in June of 1914, Willie, that is Kaiser, mm-hmm. and Nicky, that's the czar, are writing notes to each other. Willie, don't let him do this. Nikki, stop them! Yeah, so these guys are pals. Yeah, they're they they they're cousins. They know each other. They vacation together. They so the idea that cultural uh, can overcome 
uh, structural, uh, certainly not in World War One. Yeah, and people think even with with uh, the U.S. and China today, I mean, obviously such a close trade relationship, people forget they have very close trade relationships they between Britain very and thick, Germany. Very thick economic uh, relations, and actually in education, most uh, many many leading Brits would go to university in Germany yeah. and vice versa. A PhD was uh, essentially founded in Germany, the modern Absolutely. PhD, and I believe. Uh, the U.S., the U.K. Foreign Office, in uh, did some research on this. Had actually had a um, was worried that Americans, too many Americans, were going to Germany to do PhDs during World War One. So they started their PhD by no coincidence in 1917. Oh, at I Oxford. didn't know that. Yeah, yeah fascinating. Um, yeah. You had asked before about a question about cases that would be right. analogous. So the. The case that should give us chills is World War One. Yes. The case that should give us hope is the Cold War. So again, uh, as you know from Harvard students today, uh, too many of them don't even know what was the Cold War. So the Cold War uh, was an amazing invention, the Cold War strategy. So in 1946, in April, a great American diplomat, George Kennan, who was in the embassy, uh, wrote a the so-called long telegram, which is famous for high-average stu mm -hmm. students. Yep. So the long telegram said, you just have barely got over World War II. You're exhausted. You're bringing the troops home. But I'm telling you, there's a new adversary who is even more threatening yeah. than the Nazis. Nothing anybody wanted to hear. So this was like, sound the alarm. Right. The Nazi, the, the Soviet communists under Stalin right. marching or pose a threat. That stimulated a, a debate and discussion yeah. that went on for about four years. So I mark it all the way to NSC 68 mm -hmm. in 1950, where you've got a great burst of strategic yeah. imagination, and people invented a whole new strategy for something called Cold War, which in my columns, that goes into the no war column, so that's actually because it was war without killing thousands of each other. So that's actually the Cold War, and ironically right now, given all the stuff that's going on through Russia, what you're saying is cold, the Cold War is actually a reason for optimism, that we actually we actually were able to avoid war with a huge adversary, a challenging power. And you had a ringside seat to that, right? right? You were in 19, you were flying back and forth to... Oh, I've been in the, I mean, I'm an old Cold Warrior with lots of grooves in my head. What was head. that like? Uh, well, because you mean, were, people don't remember. I, yeah. I worked for... Ronald Reagan, Secretary of Defense mm. in Weinberger, yeah. back in the 80s. And basically, we believe that the Soviet Union was the evil empire. I still believe it was, as Reagan said. We believe that it had built up mm. a nuclear capabilities that would match the U.S., and that that was unacceptable. And we, therefore, had a big Defense Department surge. Mm -hmm. And we believe that, ultimately, the society, the Soviet system, was so corrupt and so cockamamie mm -hmm. that it needed to be undermined mm -hmm. that was undermining itself. And that's how it turned out. So I would say in the Cold War, there were moments in which, if you go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm -hmm. in 1962, John Kennedy thought there was a one in three chance of nuclear war that could kill 100 million people. Nonetheless, he confronted Khrushchev over missiles that he was placing in Cuba that could attack the American homeland. When he got in the middle of the crisis, as I've written in, a, in, a, in another book, he, he began to think with his brother, what the hell are we doing? I mean, 
uh, you know, this could end in the nuclear We, of war. course, didn't even know that there How? were 100 nuclear yeah, exactly. tech missiles already there. Exactly. So um, as he got into it, yeah. he began to think, yikes. Yeah. And therefore, he became extremely inventive. So I would say the inventiveness exhibited in the case of the Cold War is what we need to replicate yeah. as we try to think about the relationship with China. What are the sorts of ways the U.S.-China relationship could spin out of control? Well, I have a chapter in the book called From Here to War, mm. and I have five paths, scenarios, none of which require a stretch that get you from what's actually happening today to war. I would say the one that's most vivid currently would be North Korea. So in the current situation, we're seeing North Korea step by step, uh, and soon to take a step, if it's not interrupted, that will allow Kim Jong-un to have the capability to strike San Francisco or Los Angeles with a nuclear bomb. That's impossible to most people to believe. Here's a little isolated, uh, impoverished uh, kingdom. How in the world could they even have nuclear weapons? Well, they do. How could they have missiles? Well, they do. How could they have missiles that can reach Seoul or Tokyo? They do, already, today. And how could they be preparing tests for a ICBM that would deliver a weapon? They're doing it. So that's happening. That's what the American intelligence community would tell you. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, arrives Trump. And Trump has said from the very first tweet when Obama told him about this problem. So Obama told him, I'm leaving for you a real crisis. And he went and tweeted that same day, this is not going to happen. I'm telling you, whatever else happens, Kim Jong-un is not going to be able to attack America with nuclear weapons. He told that to Xi Jinping at Mar-a-Lago. He says that again every week when he has a chance, mm. you know, if anybody asks him. So now we have, on the one hand, mm. Kim Jong-un proceeding. Mm-hmm. And he actually conducts a test almost every week of some sort. And we have Donald Trump digging in. So this is, as I've written, this is like a Cuban Missile Crisis in slow motion. So you can see the actors moving in inexorably to the point where there's going to be a fork in the road in which Trump's going to have to choose between attacking and acquiescing. That'll be it. Only two choices. And if he attacks, the American intelligence community believes that we can we can prevent North Korea testing missiles, for sure, for sure. But if we attack North Korea, the American intelligence community believes North Korea is going to respond by attacking Seoul and killing a million people. Well, if it does, the South Koreans are going to go to war with North Korea. And we're the military ally of South Korea. And China is allied with North Korea. And we saw this in 1950 in the Korean War, when lo and behold, Americans and Chinese end up killing each other, uh, and the war ended up right. having to sort of end in, a, in, a, in an armistice. Okay, so we have this problem, right? So what do we, do we attack? Do we not attack North Korea? If we want to prevent a war with China, what do we do? Well, that's a good question, and I think the answer is nobody knows. So I don't like basically, that answer. Well, basically what has happened so far is each time we've come to this crossroad, attack or acquiesce, We've acquiesced. That's the truth. We know that. South Koreans know that. The North Koreans know that. So that's the most likely outcome. So the most likely outcome is that North Korea will come to have the capability to attack San Francisco or Los Angeles, and Trump will find some way to 
explain it. But another possibility, and more hopeful possibility, and this is where they were starting at Marilago. So could you imagine, as Xi Jinping said, well, maybe we have restraint for restraint. So maybe you have to give something in order to get something. So if North Korea were prepared to postpone any further missile tests, what would you give them? Well, maybe you would give them some adapt, some adjustments. Maybe you would even cancel some American military operations and, and maneuvers in mm-hmm. the way. Maybe with a new president in South Korea, he's going to be prepared to give them some financial assistance. So they would get some other benefits. So could you imagine this at least postponing the problem for some significant period of time? Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, how about a bigger solution than that? Well, I mean, I, I like to think about this in terms of, as I teach in my class at Harvard. So imagine there were an adult supervisor. Of course, there's not. There's what international relations, sort. what international relations mm-hmm. people know is anarchy. So every state runs itself. Mm-hmm. And whoever's president of China or U.S. is the president. That's it. But let's imagine a Martian. That's again far-fetched. And she's a serious strategist and an adult. So now she parachutes in to uh, Mary Lanka. And they're sitting, you, you're she, and I'm Trump. And she says, I've just come to give you a little supervision, a little few suggestions. Here's what I have for you. One, you have terrible problems, each of you. Maybe, maybe insurmountable problems that you will not be able to overcome. That's number one. Number two, all those problems lie within your border. So your, your first 99 problems are at home. And you are us currently, your system, your political system, is failing to deal with them. And I'm not sure it's going to succeed. But in any case, if you took all your mind share and all your energy and focused simply on trying to see whether America can govern itself under the current conditions, there's enough work for you to do for 10 years. And Mr. Xi, I'm going to say to you, very same thing. Absolutely identical. If I look at your set of challenges, they're even worse than Mr. Trump's. And I don't know whether you're going to be able to cope with it. So you may think you have a problem here. You may think you have a problem there. Have some perspective. You have a problem. You have a lot of problems. Almost all of them are inside your border. And if you fail to deal with those problems, you're going to fail internationally. So only if you succeed. Now, after you get that in mind, you also have some problems. And here's this problem with North Korea. But how can a little, small, teeny, impoverished state become the, the, the terrorist in Sarajevo that assassinates somebody yeah. that leads you to the war? If that happens, shame on you. you know, this will be, you, you're insane. Okay. Here was a, you saw this movie before. I'm right. telling you how this works. This is not that hard. So now, how would you go about dealing with it? Well, then there's a lot of possibilities. I mean, if America and China simply said to, to Kim Jong-un, I'm telling you, here's some things that are not going to happen. Not going to happen. And the two great powers on Earth are going to squeeze you until you yeah. get it. If you don't get it, I think you could solve this problem. So one of the things, I want to transition a little bit to more like general issues of foreign policy. Sure. One of the things that you... Uh, that, that people talk about uh, when deciding whether something is worth America's attention. They use the word vital national interest. Yeah. This is in our vital national interest to go here. It's in our vital national interest to, to intervene in Libya or whatever. Yeah. It's not in our vital national interest. What is a vital national interest? Okay, so this is something I teach about in my course, okay, as you know. Uh, so basically, 
Americans use, American political leaders use vital promiscuously. So whatever matters to me at the moment, I declare to be vital. But that means that vital means essentially nothing. So as Sam Nunn said, most American political leaders can't distinguish between vivid, which means Aha, I'm focused on this bright shiny object, and vital, which means that really, really, really matters. So vital, as I say, and in the American Commission, Commission on American National Interest, vital means what Webster's Dictionary says it means, which is essential, essential for their survival and well-being of an entity. So what is vital for me as a human being, if you look at Meslop's hierarchy of, of, uh, of values, what's vital for me is that I have air. I have no air, I you watch and see how I behave. Yeah. I begin to have water. I have no water, look and see how I behave. Have food, how do I behave? So if you said what is required for my survival and well-being, that's what means vital. And most of the things that are alleged to be vital, for example, are islands in the South China Sea, whether there's this one or that one, or who owns it, vital for the U.S.? No. If one sunk, we wouldn't care. If a new one appears, uh, I mean, it's not like it matters not at all. So vital so vitals ex- vitals ex- existentially threatening problems. Right. So... You can never go wrong with Webster's. Right. Uh, so. Well, at least it's a clue. It's good. It's a good place to start. It's a good place to start. Good place to end. Yeah. Uh, but then, okay, so then, does that mean, does that mean, there, there seems to be only like two vital interests here. The only places that could really threaten America existentially are like Russia and China, or maybe any other nuclear armed state. Well, if, 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 if I mean, it's literally, most technically, you need a nuclear superpower to erase the U.S. from the map. Uh, Russia could do that. China could do that. But if five or ten nuclear weapons dropped on American cities, this is not America as we know it. I mean, this transformed America. So I would say uh, a North Korea that attacked the U.S., if it could do with nuclear weapons, especially, uh, you know, a number of nuclear weapons, you'd say, well, that's getting, that I mean, getting into the vital zone. So you, the, the, the problem with terrorism, then, is not really terrorism. It's it's whether or not terrorists get a hold of nuclear weapons. It's right. not... If, if terrorists kill three people or 13 people or 30 people, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. And we, we care about, obviously, you and I care about more than just survival right. and well-being. We care about whether we're healthy. We care about whether we're... Uh, 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 knowledgeable. We, so a lot of other things. So I, I think we think of a, we should think of a hierarchy of interests. Mm-hmm. So we have vital, that's only a few, mm-hmm. or we should keep track of which ones those are. Then we have extremely important interests, which are important. Actually, they're extremely important. They're just not vital. And then we have lesser important. Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. You got a favorite breed of dog? I do. I, I have a corgi. You have a corgi? Uh, whose name is Annie, who turned 17 Whoa. last month. Her story is that she used to work for the Queen. She escaped. Yeah. She showed up in a kill shelter, and we found her. Now, how she got to the shelter, uh, you know, it's not been confirmed. Yeah. And uh, what is it about corgi? They've got tiny little legs. They, they long, have a, beautiful. They're big dogs yeah. with short legs. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, do you, so you, I assume you're 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 a dog person, not a cat person. I am. I am. Do you think that means anything about your views on foreign policy, if well, you're a cat lover or a dog lover? I think that uh, Annie is a great consultant and has very wise views on most topics. Corgi, I mean, corgis have attitude, and they have uh, thoughts about things, and they learn uh, that you know you can. Uh, as they say about human beings, they use way too many words. You know, basically, you can get your point across much more briefly. Whereas cats, uh, cats don't really have a. They don't. They don't really reflect on you know what's going on around them. They just you know survive. I don't like their. I don't like their pessimism either. I feel like dogs have optimism, and I thrive on positive energy. Yeah. Uh, Grand, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank and, you for uh, having me. All right. Office Hours was produced by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government.